Hello? Hello, hello. Well, um, I think pretty much most of you know, um, but for those of you who may not have heard, on Thursday morning, my dad had a heart attack, and uh, not, not a very nice one. Apparently, he's saying that only about 20% of people actually survive the type of heart attack that he had. So it was not the greatest. And um, so he ended up having some stints in, or stents. Is it stents? Or st it's stents, isn't it? <laughs> keep saying stints. But anyway, he's, uh, so he's doing okay, but he's had a few complications. Um, he's still in hospital at the moment, and I don't think he'll be out until maybe tomorrow. Um, but we're just waiting to hear to see how he's going. He is still having a little bit of trouble because he's, got, he's still having a bit of pain down his arm. Um, so I appreciate praying this morning for him. And the other thing that he has been diagnosed with now is also his type 2 diabetes. And so he's going to have to have uh, insulin injections every day. So that's, And he's going to have a huge lifestyle change from here. But the awesome thing is, is he's, he's still here. He's, um, and I saw him like the, that day that later in the day when he had the heart attack and he looked pretty rough. But then I went in again yesterday and he was much, he looked heaps better. And so he is slowly recovering, but he's just, yeah, there's still a few more things that you could pray for. That would be great. And my mum's doing all right as well, um, as well as she can do, I guess. She's, she's one that is, she probably doesn't, um, it's a bit internal what's going on. It doesn't come out. Uh, she's not very expressive that way, but uh, she seems to be holding up. Okay, so she also appreciates your prayer and support. So that's where things are at. So, yes. Um, this morning, um, I'm going to... It's funny because Dad's been sharing a series about this thing of peace, basically uh, about how peace, having a peace that lasts... A peace in the midst of a storm, in the midst of chaos, in the midst of a crisis. So I thought that it would only be fitting for me to speak about something similar. Um, what to do or pretty much how to have peace in the midst of a crisis. Have peace in the midst of chaos. For me, it's very real right now. So, um, and I found that it works. So um, I just felt to share that with you guys today. And so if you go to John... Chapter 14, and we're going to look at some stuff here. So we're not talking about just any old worldly peace where everything seems to be perfect around us, where you get like the postcard picture of some tropical paradise where you've got nice, clear, blue waters, nice, sunny, uh, blue skies, and it's just everything around you is rosy. There's nothing wrong. There's no challenges. There's no opposition. Every single traffic light that you go through is like green, where it's just like nothing is wrong, right? That's, not the, that's kind of like a worldly peace, where worldly peace is all about trying to control your environment, control everything around you so that you can be in a place of calm and still. But that's not the Bible peace. That's not the kind of peace that we're talking about here. So if you've got John 14, we're going to look at this, uh, verse 27. And this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Now, Jesus is saying this to his disciples. 
just before he's about to be betrayed, just before he's about to be arrested and then go to the cross. So imagine the disciples, right? They're in a place where they're about to face the most challenging, the most traumatic, the most intense crisis of their life, right? They're about to witness Jesus being horrifically tortured and crucified. So, and Jesus says to them in that place, don't worry, take heart. You're going to be in peace. You can be in peace. You can be in a place of not worrying. You can be in a place where you can be secure and have a calm, even though you're about to go through the most intense time of your life. And how is it that he can say that kind of thing? Because you think that it's fair enough. They can freak out. Because imagine, like, imagine being one of the disciples, right? So three years ago, Jesus comes onto the stage, and you see him, he's speaking with power, he's speaking with authority, and he's this guy, and he's even claiming to be the son of God. Remember, you don't know who he is, and he's saying all these outlandish kind of stuff, stuff that's just uh, in their minds would just be, he's a lunatic, he's crazy. Yet then he starts backing it up by doing signs, wonders, he's doing miracles, he's doing crazy things like walking on water, he's multiplying food, he's cleansing people of leprosy, blindness, he's lifting people up who've, got, who've never walked in their life, he's uh, even raising the dead, and then when he encounters people who's got thousands and thousands of demons, the demons submit, they bow to him, and they even run away from him. He's a guy that you would look at and go, this is the son of God. Who could beat him? No one could defeat him. No mere person could defeat this guy. Look at the stuff that he's doing. He's walking on water. He's telling storms to get lost. They're like, you would think that this guy would never succumb to uh, death, pretty much, and to the torture and stuff that they're going to go through. So they're there, and they see this guy. He's their savior. He's the person that they're holding up. They've devoted and committed their entire life to they're going, yes, he's the guy that the Bible has been talking about, or the scriptures have been talking about. He's the prophesied Messiah who's going to save us. And yet he stands there, gets arrested, and while he's there being accused of all the things that he never did, he stays silent and says nothing. Imagine being there and seeing your friend now, after three years of being very close with, now you go, why isn't he doing nothing? Why is he standing there? Why is he being silent? Shouldn't he be, like, doing something? Bringing these angels, saying some words of wisdom to get him out of this situation, putting the people in his place? But he didn't. He stood there and was silent. And then they watched him be tortured to death. And as much as horrific and, and traumatizing it would have been for them, they're also in a place where now they're at risk of facing the same sentence. This is a pretty like intense moment for them. And Jesus says right before it, knowing this is going to happen, you can have peace. You can not, your heart can be not troubled during this time. So it's, he's not talking about a worldly peace at all. Because who would be able to like, go through that and not be moved at all and not be affected by your, by your surroundings? So we're talking about a supernatural peace a peace that is just, uh, it's an inner strength that is so powerful that
that even it defies logic, it defies reason, and it gives you a strength to be able to stand and stay calm even in the midst of everything else around you saying the opposite, being absolutely chaotic, being terrifying. And you can stand there and go, I know who I am. I know that I have peace. I know that I'm with God. That's an awesome thing. How many of you want that kind of peace? You've got it. So let's look here again. Um, we live in a world that's not merely natural. Do you know that? It's not just about what we can see, what we can feel, taste, and smell. It's more to it than that. There is much more to it. But we, we operate just in this natural kind of, we access a natural physical world, but we also operate from a higher level, which is the realm of thought, a realm of our imagination, a realm of our emotions, of our will, of our just intellect. It's a higher realm than the natural because you can imagine things way beyond what you can kind of see. So we operate there. But then there's another realm, again, that's higher than that, and that is the spiritual realm. And that spiritual realm is a lot what Jesus was talking about with his disciples. All the time he's teaching them about the spirit. And it's very important to know this kind of stuff. And um, so I just want to give you a few scriptures here. Jesus knew that he wasn't just some bag of bones with a brain, right? He was, he was very much so aware that first and foremost he was a spirit being. That that's who he is, first and foremost. And you are the same. First and foremost, you are a life-giving spirit. And it's something that's very important, I think, to know that we, we operate in three different realms, but first and foremost, the spirit is who we really are. So I'm going to look at some things here. You don't have to turn to them because I'll just read through them out. But here we go. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 17, it says, Whoever is united with the Lord is one spirit with him. And I think Dad's done a series on that. But just remember, we are one spirit with Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 6 says, God raised us up with Christ and seated us in the heavenly realms. Right? We are in heavenly places. Spiritually, we are there. We are connected. We are always in spiritually realms. We don't go backwards and forwards. You are always there. Two Corinthians, oh, Colossians 2, verse 3. Sorry, Colossians 2, and three talks about how our soul is not bound to this world anymore. We're not tied to here anymore, but we've been made free so that we shouldn't be fooled and don't be swayed or molded or like put in, you know, like transformed into the patterns of this world. But actually, we should be setting our minds on things above, setting our minds in heavenly places because that's where you are, that's who you are. That's where you're from. And Philippians 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about how we are new creations. The old is gone, the new is here, and that now we are ambassadors of another world. Again, just from that position that we're not from here, we're from another place. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, this is what I want to get into. It says, for though we live in the world... We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power 
to demolish strongholds. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God because we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In Ephesians 6, it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We may live in this world, but I tell you, we are not of this world. We are spirit people. It might sound strange, but it is 100% true. We are spirit people. So often we face these things that uh, we can think are merely a natural consequences and natural opposition that comes against us. But actually many times there is a spiritual force that is behind it, that is driving it, that is the empowering behind the thing that's happening to us in the natural. And it's very important that we recognize these things. You see, it's, it's funny, like Paul wrote all these scriptures, Paul the Apostle, and um, he knew that the enemy was not worldly, but it was a spiritual thing. But then you look at his life and the things that happened in his life, you would look at and you go, that's, the, that's worldly opposition because he's being beaten, he's being put into prisons, he's being uh, whipped, he's being like run out of towns, he's being arrested, he's, he's getting shipwrecked, and eventually he gets his head cut off. And it just seems like it's all this worldly opposition, but he never considered it that. He considered it to be uh, spiritual opposition. And the same as Jesus, he was exactly the same way. Because think about it, how could he say, forgive all these people, for they do not know what they're doing? Because his, his enemy was not people, it was the spiritual forces that were behind it. And so... Our war is not against flesh and blood, but it is against powers in the spiritual realm. So when we uh, combat these things, when we combat places of being in crisis, we're not to be necessarily combating it in primarily in the natural. Our first instinct should be, as spirit people, we're to combat it in the spirit because it is the highest realm. So how do we do that? Just as there are natural laws that govern the world, there's heaps of those sorts of things, there's also spiritual laws that govern the things of the spirit. And laws are consistent. They don't fluctuate. That's why they're a law. That's why it's, it's spiritual things we can often get caught into thinking that um, it, sometimes it doesn't work because we just don't see the results. But actually, maybe it's just a thing of we haven't learned how to operate and how to get in partnership and do what the spiritual law actually requires you to do. Same things you talk about electricity, talk about gravity, all these sort of things. The law is consistent, but say you sometimes planes crash, right? Sometimes we get electrocuted and it's not because the law is fluctuating, it's because the integrity of whatever we're doing is wrong. We're failing to operate according to the law. So spiritual laws are consistent always. It's sometimes we're just failing to be able to know how to do it properly. Does that make sense? Yep. So here, I just want to look at this one thing, which I believe is a spiritual law, a principle of the spirit, a thing that we could call a spiritual weapon that we use to fight with, use that to combat 
crisis, to combat things when the spiritual things are coming against us, when there's spiritual opposition. So here it is. It's in John. It's in a lot of scriptures, and we'll look at a few different things, but this is where it's, to me, the most clearest. It's in John 6, verse 63. It says this. It is just Jesus speaking. He says, It is the Spirit who gives life. Right? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. That's a powerful kind of verse to think, right? The Spirit is what gives life. The flesh is no help at all. No help. That's a funny concept to me to just think about. And then he goes on and he says, The words that I have spoken are spirit, they are life. The words I have spoken are spirit, they are life. The words I have spoken are spirit and life. The words I have spoken are spirit and life. The key spoken. We miss that bit. And I believe it is one of the number one spiritual laws. You have to speak. When God created the world, he created the universe, he didn't think it into being. He didn't form it necessarily with his hands. He didn't do all these sorts of things. He didn't build it with tools. How did he do it? He spoke. And it became spirit. It became life. So there is a time for silence, but primarily the way that God has designed his spirit to move through, it is through his word. And his word is made effective by us opening our mouths, preaching, declaring, praising. It is the law of the spirit. It is a weapon against darkness. It is our spoken word. It's a huge deal. And so I'm going to look at a few different things to kind of back this up. Remember Jesus, in the, he just, he's fallen asleep in a boat and the disciples are with him in the boat and then this massive storm comes along, this huge storm, and the disciples are freaking out. Now remember, these are disciples who are professional fishermen who've been doing this for pretty much their whole life and it's on the Sea of Galilee. And I know I've looked a little bit at the Sea of Galilee and seen a couple videos of what it's like when there's rough weather. It doesn't get heaps rough, <laughs> Right? So the storm that came along to professional fishermen who've been doing it their whole life and they are terrified to the point where they're convinced that they're going to die, I want to suggest to you it was not just a natural storm. It was a spiritual thing behind it. And so then we see Jesus, who's annoyed because he got woken up, says, uh, firstly rebukes the, the disciples, but then he stands up and what does he do? Like a weirdo, he starts talking to the weather. Right? Remember, these are disciples who never seen anything like this. And so he starts addressing the storm. And he says, peace, be still. And then there was a calm. And I like, I'm just going to read out this. This is the Amplified Version. And it says, and there was a great calm, a perfect peacefulness that came upon him. And then it says this. This is a bit that I kind of like. Jesus kind of, once he's done all this, he looks over to his disciples and says, why are you still afraid? 
Why do you still not have confidence in me? Which I think that was the main thing he was probably annoyed at. Why don't you think that I've got, like, that I'm awesome, <laughs> pretty much? <laughs> but this is really cool. This is this bit I like. He said, they were filled with great fear, and they said to each other, who is this? They're like, who is this guy? Who even the winds and the waves obey his commands. I think that's amazing. So the storm was not a natural one. It was empowered by a spiritual opposition. And so Jesus, when he stood up, he knew that his words were not just merely natural. When he spoke, they were spirit, they were life. So I'm just going to look at another one here. One day, Jesus and his disciples were going into Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus felt a bit hungry and he sees a fig tree. And he goes over to the fig tree to find some figs, some fruit, but he can't find any. And so because he couldn't find any, again, just imagine from the disciples thing, they're watching him, and then Jesus starts talking to the tree. And he says, because I can't find any figs, you will never bear fruit from, for anyone else ever again. And then they just keep going. So they'll be like, that's a bit odd. This guy's talking to trees now. So then they go into, the, into Jerusalem, they go into the temple, and then Jesus... Um, doesn't like what's going on there because they're basically selling stuff and doing all this stuff in the temple. And so he gets really mad. I'm not sure if this is the same incident because he does it twice, but he makes a whip in one of them and starts hitting people, right? He would have hit people because they're not going to run away from him and clear the entire temple unless they thought he was going to hit them. So he turned everything up and he was real angry and drove them all out. Now think of the disciples. He just sees Jesus angry because a tree didn't bear fruit in a time that it wasn't even the season for that fruit. So by natural law, that tree shouldn't even be bearing fruit. But then Jesus stands there and yells at it angrily, saying, why haven't you given me fruit? And now he goes into the temple, goes nuts trying to hit people and drives out this whole thing. Looks like Jesus didn't have a very good day. All right? He looks a little bit angry. So the next day, he goes out, out of the city. They walk past the tree again. And the disciples go, whoa, what's going on? The tree has died. It is withered, and it is now just gone. And they say, look, Jesus, the tree you cursed is dead. And then Jesus says this, which is famous words, which you all know. Um, sorry, I didn't find where it's at. <laughs> he says, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, what mountain? Think about what Jesus is saying, right? Do we take this? Sometimes we can forget it like what he's saying. He must be pointing to a mountain. If anyone says to this mountain, he's not talking figuratively. He's looking at a mountain and going, this mountain. If you say this mountain be moved and you don't doubt in your heart, it will be done for you. What do you reckon was on the mountain? I don't think that. I think... It was a mountain full of fig trees. Yes. So he's saying, you can, you can say this to one fig tree. Who cares about one? You can say to this whole mountain full of trees, be moved and be cursed or whatever you want, and it will be done for you. And so there's a few accounts of this, but then there's other ones as well, which I think sometimes we can get stuck in. In, in Matthew 17 and Luke 17, he says something very, very similar, but he, he says it before it, if anyone has faith as small as a mustard seed, 
And we get caught on that. But he goes on to say the same thing. Speak to this mountain and it will be moved for you. What is the real key point? Speak to your mountain. It is not anything to do with how small your mustard seed or all this kind of junk. It's not that. The spiritual law is you speak and your words are life. They are, they are spirit. It is the spiritual law. And then we, we've heard this before and how it says, uh, don't tell God how big your mountain is, but tell your mountain how big God is. Amen. And it's exactly what, what Jesus is saying. So I'll give you another, just another, one more example, and we'll do something else. There's heaps of examples of it, by the way, in the scriptures. So Jesus was going into Capernaum, and he goes there because Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And so he goes in there, and he heals, he heals her, or her fever, and uh, people in the town hear that he's there. And so I'll just read this in Matthew 8. It says, when evening came... They brought to him many who were under the power of demons. And he cast out the evil spirits with what? Laying of hands, prayer, fasting, going through 10-step process of how to deliver people of demons. Did he do all that? It says by a word. He delivered them all of demons by a word, his spoken word. Again, just another example. There are, there are many others, but I think you get my point. So if you want, if you just turn to Philippians chapter 4, and I'm just going to finish off with just a few things from this scripture. and tie this together a bit. We know this pretty well. So Philippians 4 verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts, your minds in in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, Put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, I just want to give three kind of key components um, which I believe are tied together to, in the midst of this one spiritual law of your spoken words, a spirit, they are life. And there are three things that I believe are keys to how to thrive in the midst of crisis, in the midst of chaos. So number one, it's obvious, number one in this verse is rejoice. And not just rejoice once, but rejoice again. Have a whole rejoicing kind of sandwich where you just rejoice always. All right? 
And rejoice is not silent. Rejoicing is not this quiet kind of contemplation. It is loud, it is vibrant, it is expressive, right? When, when the Bible talks about praising God, it gives all these different ways of how to praise. It's like clapping hands, it's shouting, it's lifting your hands, it's dancing, it's expressive. So that's what he's talking about when we rejoice. It's to do things openly and expressively, praising God, praising the Lord. And so I know sometimes we can feel shy and we don't necessarily enjoy or feel like we enjoy praising God outwardly. I know I certainly did, especially younger. I hated it. I was mega shy. I hated it because everything would just be, what are people thinking of me? What are they looking at me? Everyone's thinking the same thing. So it doesn't matter that much, really. But I've found that the number one way that God gets you free of it is through praise and through worship. It's the way he's designed it. It's through our praising, through our rejoicing, it gets us free of think of what other people think of us. And so even through our praise and through our worship, we're actually discovering who we really are because we're made in the image of God and God is not shy. He is expressive. He is extremely passionate. He is extremely outward with the things he does for us. He lavishly loves us. He lavishly sings and dances over us. He praises, he shouts, he prays for us outwardly. It's not silent contemplation. He is extremely expressive. So rejoice like that. And just remember, to, there's heaps of stories you can look at in the Bible of this, just like Paul and Silas in prison and uh, in Acts 16, and they start praising God. It's midnight. They've just been beaten. They've been whipped. They're in chains. They're hungry. They're tired. They're hurting. They're bleeding, and they start praising God in the middle of the night. And then we know the rest of the story. There's a massive earthquake. Things break open. They don't even leave because they'd rather stay in the presence of God right there than try and be free naturally. They knew that they were free spiritually. And so then the rest of the story, the guard gets saved and everything. It's a wonderful story. But there's more. There's more than just that. You look back in the Old Testament with things like Jericho and the guys march around the walls and they give shouts of praise and the walls come down. Same, it's just another parallel thing with us. We have these walls that we put up, guarding insecurities and all these sorts of things. You praise God and the walls will come down. And uh, there's, there's many others as well with Gideon and, and stuff. So, What time is it? How are we going? I'll share some. I think there's a really good CD that if you can get a, get a hold of, you should get. And it's by a guy called Joshua Mills. You know Joshua Mills at all? He's got a CD out, and it's called Praise Changes the Atmosphere. I know some of you have heard it, but if you can get on that, that is really awesome. He's got a few stories on there when he talks about times where he's been in. I'll just give you one where he's on his way to a meeting where he's supposed to be uh, the main kind of minister, and their car breaks down. And so they're in the car, they're going, oh, no, what are we supposed to do? We're in the, we don't even know where we are. And uh, so they just sit in the car and they start praising God. And a guy comes up, now this is crazy, a guy comes up out of the middle of nowhere, they don't know where he's come from, and he's got, they say, a paperclip, right? Sounds strange. He comes, he opens up the hood just with the paperclip, and all of a sudden the car starts. And they're like, wow, what's going on? And then they can drive off, and the guy goes, and they never see him again. And it's just, oh, he's got other stories that are similar to that, that 
where it's just this thing where they're facing this opposition that is spiritual. It's not just natural. And they start praising God, they start rejoicing, and then something just opens up. So he's, praise changes the atmosphere. You should get that. Uh, number two, we'll just look at this. Prayer and petition and thanksgiving. It's what we should do when we hit into a crisis. Prayer by petition and thanksgiving. And we're not talking about begging God to do something. We're not trying to twist his arm to do something. Remember, he's already done something. And that's why we can be in a place of thanksgiving. Because we're thanking him because he has already said yes. It's just up to us to say amen. I agree with what you're saying. I agree with the fact that you said yes. You can have all things. So when it's talking about, I believe, when prayer, petition, and thanksgiving, it's talking about, again, this thing of speaking words of life, declaring what God has said, rejoicing it out with your mouth, and just saying, like, yes, pretty much to what God has already said he will do. To tell the storm to be quiet, tell the demons to go, and tell the mountain to move. That's the type of prayer that he's looking for. Just, just remember then, um, Jesus, he feeds uh, 5,000. He also feeds 4,000 as well, he talks about. And uh, the, it's the, the disciples and some of the guys, they're kind of freaking out a little bit because there's a multitude of people, but they don't have enough food to be able to give everyone. And Jesus doesn't even entertain the thought of lack, which is awesome. He doesn't even think that we don't have enough. He just goes, what do we have? And he gets, obviously, the, the small fish and the, and the bread. And he doesn't pray, God, multiply my food. He never prayed that. Because he never entertained any thought of being lack, there being a lack. He knew that he had enough. Even with this, in the natural, it looks like I've only got this. But in the spiritual, I've got all things. There is no lack. And so what does he do? He, set, he holds it up and he thanks God for it. Being in that place of thanksgiving that I've already got enough. And then he was, obviously we know the rest, everyone ate, had more than enough. They were, they were full. So thanksgiving, it's a, it's a, I don't know if this is the right word, it's the precursor for multiplication in your life. Number three. And this one we forget, I think, is to take captive negative thoughts. In verse 8 of this Philippians 4, it says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, what is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Colossians 3 says, Set your minds on things above. 2 Corinthians 10, Cape Take captive every thought that sets itself up against the knowledge of Christ. In Romans 12, we know, do not be conformed by the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and prove God's good and pleasing will. So this is a hard one, and I think we often do forget this, that it's in the Bible. And sure, God can help us with our thoughts, but... And it is such the battleground for the enemy is in your mind 
but we forget that actually it's our responsibility. The Bible talks about it over. I just listed those, and there are others as well, which talk about guard your thinking. You are in control of it. You take captive the thoughts. You need to be the one who thinks well. You should think on positive things and not get caught into the negative things. And when you're in a crisis, it is hugely important to remember to not get sucked into the spiral of thinking all the worst things that can happen. Because it is very easy to go, this thing is really bad, and then you go into the worst-case scenario, but you don't just do it once. You do it, and then you put it on replay, and you hit it over and over and over and over again, and then you can just bomb out. You lose yourself. So it's very important that we know these things. Rejoice by prayer, but also think well and guard your minds. It's a massive thing. And number four, which isn't really number four, but... This is where Paul ties it all together. He says, put these things into practice. It's not enough just to hear it. It's not enough to just even just agree with the word. Right? He says, do it. Every day. Memorize it. But, I mean, practice rejoicing. Practice what it is to pray and to speak and to declare the word of God, to declare his promises over situations. Practice the the fact that your words are spirit and they change things in the natural because the spirit is a higher realm over the natural. Practice thanksgiving and practice thinking well because it helps you hugely. It is what Jesus says to him, to the disciples right before they're about to go into the most crazy situation that they're ever going to face. And Paul as well, his life is filled with traumatic experiences, things that you would think would mess up your mind, would mess up your soul, yet he knew what it was to be able to stay in a place of peace throughout it all. And it's these spiritual laws. So that's all I thought I'd have for you today. So... So we thank you, Jesus, again, that you are the Prince of Peace, that you are awesome King of Kings, that you are never worried, that you are never anxious, that you always have a plan, that you are always strong, that you are always secure in who you are. And I just thank you, Father, that we are partakers in your divine nature, that we are one spirit with you, and that you have given us the exact same peace that you have that we don't have to earn it, we don't have to try and do all these kind of things to try and get it, that we actually already have it. And I just thank you, Father, for a supernatural peace just to be evident in our lives on a daily basis, that people would look at us and go, this is crazy, like, this is unreasonable that you're in such a state of peace. But we just thank you, Father, that it is something that we can operate in, it's something that you've given us access to, it's something that you've designed us to live in. And I just also just pray, Father, for people who here who maybe struggle with a thing of shyness and just a thing of maybe feeling intimidated and being bound by this thing of fear of man. And I just break that right now in Jesus' name and that encourage you to just praise, to worship, to rejoice in the Lord and he will just bring you into a place where you actually who you really are. You will discover that you are expressive, that you are full of goodness, full of joy and full of passion. So thank you for for that in Jesus' name. Amen.